What's going on, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate. And look, I'm really, really excited about 2021. Lord say the same. I'm going to be here and we're going to have some stuff. I'm telling you, I'm so excited about what we're going to be sharing with y'all. What I want to do, though, before we get to 2021 is really still embrace the fact that we're not in 2021 yet. Right. Like we're in the last month of a crazy year and we want to kind of like book in this year and celebrate this year by doing something called 12 days of podcasts. So we're dropping a podcast every single day for the next 12 days to wrap up the year and make sure that the content, some of the interviews that we had earlier this year that we couldn't fit into our regular schedule because this was not a regular year gets heard and absorbed and appreciated. So we're going to check in and tap in to our next interview, but not before we tap in with Tristan. You see what I did there? A little bit of, you know what I'm saying? What's the word? Transition? Pivot? Anyway, catch y'all in a second. What's going on, Living Corporate fam? It's Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting, and I've teamed up with Living Corporate to bring you all a weekly career tip. So today, let's talk about why you should prepare for your one-on-ones and how to do just that. Most of us in corporate America have bosses who are pulled in many different directions, so we should really be making the most of our one-on-one time with them. No meeting is ever productive without some preparation beforehand, so take 10 to 15 minutes either the day before or morning of to prepare. By coming prepared to your one-on-one, you can get your questions answered, make sure you're aligned with your boss, and most importantly, show the work you've been doing. So let's talk about some ways you can prepare. First, I say check your notes from the last time you met. This way, if you all didn't get to a topic, you can come back around to it, but you'll also know what follow-ups are needed. Now that takes me to my next point. Check your follow-up and task list. If your boss gave you some things to follow up on or to do, it's the worst when you get together and realize you didn't complete those tasks. At least now you may be able to get in a few calls and a few emails to say you've reached out. Also, it'll refresh your memory on things your boss took away that they're supposed to be checking on so you can bring those up as well. Next, I would say check any email exchanges you or your boss have had since your last meeting. Maybe there's something in those messages that you didn't understand, and this is a great time to ask. Maybe there's something you know your boss will want an update on, and now you can make sure that you have it. This shows your boss that you're paying attention to their correspondence. Last, but definitely not least, review your goals. At the end of the day, everything in corporate comes back to your annual goals. This will allow you to know where you stand, ensure your goals are aligned, and potentially gain feedback if you need assistance. Preparing for a one-on-one can make a world of difference in how your boss views you. Take the time to do so, and I'm sure at the very least, your working relationship will improve. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Sarah Morgan is the CEO of Buzzer Rooney LLC. She's an HR executive and expert. She's a writer, speaker, coach, consultant. Um, she also has a podcast called Leading in Color. Um, she's out here. Uh, and uh, yeah, she has this thing, HROI Summit and uh, Black Blogs Matter, Leading in Color. I mean, she, there's a lot of things that she has going on. So I'm not going to try to like mansplain her own profile. I just want to make sure that y'all know the person we have on. I'm really excited about it and I'm thankful to have Sarah. What's going on? Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Zach, what is up? I am happy to be here and to do this. Thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this. Like, I'd like to understand your start, right? Like, why HR? Why you're here? What you're doing? And then, like, how you've pivoted into, or if, it, maybe it's not a pivot, right? But mm-hmm. how you've connected human resources with diversity and inclusion? Because a lot of people, even though I think they're, they should be like hand in hand. A lot of people don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. I'd like to just understand, like, how you envision your space and and how it all comes together for you. So when I graduated college, shout out to University of Richmond, go Spiders. I had really no idea what I wanted to do. I spent most of my college years believing that I wanted to be an attorney. And then I spent a summer interning at the Virginia Attorney General's office. And I was like, ooh, this ain't what Jack McCoy be doing. I don't want to do this work no more. I ain't about this life. So I changed majors. I ended up doing a fifth year of college. And finished, didn't have a job, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I spent the summer being a very bad temp employee, just like floating from project to project, really just earning enough money to like pay my bills and party a little bit. And then finally, my roommate and my parents were like, oh, uh uh-uh, you got to get a real job. And so I ended up as a recruiting coordinator for a staffing company. Um, My mom was in human resources. And she was like, why don't you try this? Like, why don't you try doing, you know, you you grew up watching me work. You've always been fascinated by the work that I do. Why don't you try that? And so that was like my entry level way into um, HR and just fell in love with it. Went from being a recruiting coordinator to a recruiter to a client site manager. And that, that time I worked at a plant as a their their sole staffing person for we had 400 um tent long-term temporary workers at this packaging facility outside of Petersburg in Virginia and I was 22 23 years old and I just completely immersed myself in learning about the business learning about providing strong client service and learning about how to train and develop and and keep people engaged. And from that moment forward, I was just hooked. And so eventually I made the, the, as we used to call it, the crossover into traditional HR. So moved out of staffing into an HR generalist role. And now I've been in like director and head of HR roles um, as a full-time practitioner for about 10 years. So my HR career spans like 20 years. Um, probably about, I guess, close to 10 years ago now is when I won't, I don't necessarily say I pivoted. I think it evolved because I started feeling frustrated. Like so many of us do with the unwillingness of my leadership to listen to the recommendations that I was making about how we needed to progress and, and do different and better when it came to how we treat people in the workplace. So from there, I started my blog, The Buzz on HR. and When I started my blog, Zach, I was so, I did not want to talk about black stuff, you know, like I, I, I really stayed away from that for probably the first, meh, first two or three years. Like I was hardcore traditional HR, like how you administer benefits and how you deal with employee relations issues. But I really didn't touch on the issue of race and gender and marginalized identities and diversity and inclusion at all for the first few years that I was blogging. And then, um, and what, after and why tra- was that not to cut you off? Like, why was that? Um, I think it was that I just hadn't found my voice yet from an activism standpoint. 
Um, and there was still very much a part of me that believed you had to separate your racial identity from the professional work that you did, which I know now is complete like supremacist ideology bullshit. And I, I absolutely, you know, wouldn't ascribe to that anymore. But then, you know, I was still very much not aware. So I just felt like it was natural for those to be two separate parts of my identity. And so there were times where I would deal with employee relations issues that were heavily racially charged or heavily gender charged. And here I am as a black woman having to deliver this news that leaves this, this black woman, this black man unprotected in their workplace and unheard, feeling unheard and unsupported by a person who looks like them. And I took that home, you know, with me all the time and, and shed tears, you know, did a lot of uh, kickboxing exercises to get like the frustration of that off of me. And there was no space that I felt comfortable in talking yeah. about that openly. Yeah. And so it really wasn't until like most of us, it wasn't until Trayvon Martin's death that I just hit the point where it, it was enough of feeling like I can't bring my whole self and, and all of my identities with me into the workplace. And that's when I started to be more outspoken, both at work and in my writing and in my speaking about these issues. And that's what launched the Black Blogs Matter challenge. Um, and so the hashtag, I don't, I don't want to say I started the hashtag because I'm pretty sure I didn't. I would definitely say my challenge is, is what started it to like trend and be used more often, but I, I won't say that I own it. You know, I do now cause I trademarked it, Ew, but <laughs> I won't say, um, got to, you got to protect your intellectual property because I've invested a lot in, in that, but started the challenge because I hit a point where I just, I couldn't write anymore. I couldn't write that fluffy human resources crap about, you know, how to be a good mentor and, and how to, um, you know, create a successful potluck and all that other, you know, bullshit that they, they try to make HR do that has absolutely nothing to do with creating psychologically safe, inclusive and equitable work environments, which should be the work, you know, that, that we're doing. And um, once that was over, the, the doors just blew off. I went, I talked about everything from colorism to black hair to being the first and, and only person of, of color, only first and only woman, youngest person in almost every space that I occupied um, in my career up to that point. And, and it took off. People really responded to it. And so the next year I did it again. The topics were much more controversial. I had a White privilege so fragile. Mm -hmm. I think that was the one that people were like, oh, she snapped. Yes, I did. I don't care what white people think, the miseducation of white people. Um, so I just went, you know, I just kept going harder and harder to really shake people and lost some friends along the way. Which, what, what did that look like? So it really was the folks, you know, white people who had not been accustomed to me standing in my full blackness, um, who looked at me and, be and because of how I look and because of how I carried myself professionally, didn't think I was like, quote unquote, the rest of them. And these were 
you know, some of them were people I really didn't care about, to be honest. Like they were people that, you know, you network with and you build professional friendships, but they're not that deep. And so to lose those types of individuals, eh, all right, you know, not a big deal. Um, but there were some folks who I was fairly close to who I built real professional friends with and had become friends outside of work and spent time with them. They spent time with my children and suddenly I'm too black for them. And I don't even, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. So just having to, um, you know, have some of those difficult conversations and, and, you know, why am I now speaking like this? And it's like, I don't know who you are anymore. Well, if you don't know who I am in this moment and why it is that I'm, I'm feeling the need to express the anger that I feel about the ongoing oppression, the ongoing murders without justice of my people, I don't know what to tell you other than that you never knew me in the first place. And so, you know, if we have to part ways based on that, um, I'm sad, but I'm going to be all right. So yeah, I moved on from that. Um, But I won't necessarily say that it impacted my day-to-day job, to be honest, then eventually started my podcast, Leading in Color, after I had done Black Blogs Matter for a few years. The, the cool thing about doing the challenge that I didn't expect was the number of people beyond the kind of business HR leadership space that we occupy who jumped onto it. I had fashion bloggers, history bloggers food bloggers who were jumping in and talking about their experiences in their industry surrounding the same issues that I was experiencing in more of traditional corporate world. And so everybody is sharing these stories and using the hashtag and then continue to use the hashtag. So it created just a community of content sharing. And so I was like, oh man, this is so cool. And then I remember having a couple of podcasters reach out and was like, can we participate too? And I'm like, of course. So now I've got Black Pods Matter. So I added that into the mix and and had more content sharing there. And so then I was like, you know, I, I need to have a podcast where these voices and these stories have the opportunity to be told. And that's what led to me creating leading in color. Um, And so I'm now in my second season. I'm talking about the issues that we're dealing with in the workplace from a diversity, equity, inclusion lens, giving advice on how we can do it better. And then I'm also talking to experts in the DEI space, as well as executives, CEOs, and, and heads of industry that can say, here's what, you know, we need to do and just keep pushing at it. And Now I'm just about 50 days away from my first virtual event where I'll be doing two workshops to one day to train on how to do a proper equity audit and how to address pay inequity in your organization. Because I don't I don't want to celebrate another black women's equal pay day. I don't want to come to another August and have to talk about how we are only making 61 cents on the white male dollar and tw- and still tw- almost 25 cents less than our white female counterparts right. as the most educated group of humans on the planet. Right. I don't want to have that conversation no more. <laughs> so we need to do something 
about that. And the answer is, is creating equity. It's looking at how we're compensating people in our organizations, seeing where there are deficiencies and coming up with a plan to correct it. So I created an event to show people how to do that combined with a coaching cohort that's going to help you put together your presentation. So you can go in there, talk to your leadership and convince them to move forward with this plan to bring equity and keep equity and pay transparency in your organization. And then day two is going to be anti-racist HR um, and really teaching what the core concepts of anti-racism are um, and that anti-racism is a practice. It's not a one and done type of thing. It's something that you, because racism is so insidious that it's something that we have to you know, work out of every nook and cranny and crevice of how we think and how we structure organizations and processes and and the like. And so, um, but how do we start, you know, if you are an organization who wants to really focus on DEI and improve, this is how you get started um, to lay the groundwork so that your organization is a, is a safe, inclusive space for people of color and people with marginalized identities and, you know, how you put the blueprint together of how you move forward to eradicate that from your organization altogether. And both of those then leave you with the option to join my coaching cohort, where it'll be me and four other coaches from the DEI space who will be working with you for um, two months after the workshop ends to help you get your plans together. And again, present it to your decision makers so that they can be confident and give you the green light to go forward and you can feel supported in doing that. Because for those of us doing human resources work and those of us in the DEI space doing similar work of trying to get these programs and initiatives implemented and maintained, that's the hurdle is how do I convince my leadership to do this and having a community of people who can can help you be prepared and help you overcome those hurdles is crucial. And so, you know, I just felt like it, it was time um, to do that. And this is an idea I've been sitting on for a couple of years now. Um, and finally, just even before everything blew up with George Floyd, I had already set the wheels in motion. I just finally felt like now was the time for me to move forward with implementing this. And part of it was, to be honest, the power of broke <laughs> moment <laughs> because everything got canceled with COVID. And so right, right, um, right. I do all this where you do this work on the side. I do this work on the side. We both work full time jobs in addition right. to the businesses we run. Right. But I don't do this for free. I have a husband and five children who I, you know, sacrifice time to be away from mm-hmm. in order to do this work. And so it's got it's got to be lucrative. It's got to make up for the time that I don't spend, you know, with them and, and with my friends and family. So yeah. when I watched, you know, men, many of my second and third quarter events just completely get canceled. And then my fourth quarter started looking iffy. I was like, oh, man, I got to figure out a way to generate some revenue. And so I said, OK, you know, let me, you know, see what if I can put this together and, and pull this off. And it, it came together. But I, the time is is bittersweet and serendipitous simultaneously because I, I think it's it's the necessary conversation that we need to be having in, um, in this season. It's just unfortunate that this man had to 
lose his life, you know, in order for us to have this awakening. Well, I think, so. first of all, I appreciate that. And we're going to make sure we have all the stuff about HROI, all the information in there and the show notes. A side note, I, I'm about to get to something you said in a minute, but I'm going to tell you something that's a pet peeve of mine is that people really think that like HR, because I say this as someone who used to be in human resources, was an HR manager before I got into change management and then got into like external client facing consulting is mm. people really think that like there's some invisible hands at the top of every organization that forces leadership to hire black and brown people, unqualified black and brown. Like that's just not how mm-hmm. like they I was like they're like, you know, affirmative mm-hmm. action. Like that's the reason why they're like that's not how actually any of this that works. Has, no, and I've started to challenge that because you never flip that on its head when you're hiring white people. Ever. So I've started to challenge just when I hear that, I just challenge the complete supremacy of that notion because no one ever says, what about all the black and brown candidates that we're overlooking by hiring this white dude? Never. No one ever says that. So the fact that it comes out of your mouth to say that by hiring this highly qualified person of color that you are somehow disenfranchising white people is like the epitome of the supremacist culture that just is deep in the underbelly of our organizations that we have to eradicate and and get rid of hire the person because you're hiring them because they're qualified. Ain't no unqualified black and brown people sneaking into corporate America. Spoiler alert. It's not right. happening. Right. We right. are in 90% of the time overqualified for those positions and still underpaid. So the gate is not open with, with people sneaking in. It's not it's not happening. Well, I think here's my here's my piece with this too, right? Is like even when you talk about like hiring people, like how many times do we have these conversations or like I've been in the rooms where people are getting hired. Right. And like, we never go, well, we don't want to hire that person because we were looking for diversity. Like I haven't even had those conversations. Mm -hmm. Like I don't even like, they're not passive or aggressive or passive aggressive. They're not, (laughs) they're not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing that happens. And absolutely right. Like I I, I can't, I can't count. I'm not going to expose the people who I've had these conversations with, but they're like little red flags when I talk to folks. They're like, well, you know, we want to make sure, and they kind of go, well, you know, we, we want to make sure that people are getting promoted and hired for the right reasons. I'm like, what, do you, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And the fun, the wild part about it is you think that you're honoring me and having an, like a respectful conversation when you say that to me. First of all, again, black and brown people mm-hmm. don't get hired for the wrong reasons because black and brown people don't get hired in rates that are even comparable that you could even have that argument. But we all know Correct. that there's plenty of white folks that get hired for the wrong reasons they get hired right. because they know somebody they get hired because really again because they have a network or because they have something they have a like they have they went to a certain school doesn't really mm-hmm. matter they don't know anything so like that's not true but, it's like oh this person remind i can't tell you how many times i've heard in my career you know they remind me of me when i was a young so if if you can't see me at you don't and you don't see that you know if i if i'm the black brown brown person the woman this white executive doesn't look at me and see themselves in me. So they don't excuse all of the behaviors and things. They can't relate to me whatsoever. I'm a unicorn. And that ends up, you know, hurting us, you know, so tremendously. So, yeah, I, over the years in, in human resources, I've absolutely had those same experiences and sat in rooms and am just flabbergasted and hurt you know, by the, the 
ignorance that pe- that comes out of people's mouths so comfortably. And yeah. I'm I'm glad to be at a point in my career where I call it out unapologetically and without pause. Um and I'm 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 regretful for the many many years that I didn't do it and and I think it a lot of times about the people who I harmed because I I feared saying something. Um can I, I don't know that I can go back and apologize to them all. Um but when when I've had the opportunity I definitely do. Um and definitely, you know, acknowledge that it happened and and say, you know, not not one further. I'm not doing it no more. No, a hundred percent. I'm also thankful for me just coming to peace with the fact that like, look, you know, your job, whatever, they're going to fire you or they're not going to fire you. So you might as well just be, mm-hmm. just be yourself, right? Live in the authenticity of your experience and your identity and move, keep it moving from there. Um, you know, you made a lot of statements earlier about just your journey and creating your platform. I think about the fact that like, you know, living corporate is unique in that very rarely do we like come out and just like, I'm not saying that you do this, but like we're not necessarily antagonistic towards white folks, but like our very platform is seen as threatening to a lot of people. Right. Because Mm -hmm. because we're like in certain ways, pretty respectable. And then we also have this um, network of, of folks and corporations because of just the guests that we've had that the company I work for. Most people on their face will smile. Um, But the thing about it is, is that the more senior folks I talk to, the more nervous they are about me. Right. The more nervous they are mm-hmm. about, like, just the existence of what I do and, their, and the questions around, like, so and what are you doing this for? Right. Like, mm-hmm. why, why are you doing this? Like, I mean, the question is, why haven't y'all paid me to do this for y'all? Like, this is for a, you. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. why? don't ask. I mean, the fact that you even have to ask me why I'm doing this lets me know that I should be doing it. And then, too, I don't have time to explain why I'm doing this because, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, what are we doing here? But what's funny about that, yeah, and not funny in a in a good way. It's no, this a colloquial funny, like, mm, like, well, isn't it funny? Is that there are so many white people who have whole side businesses, and nobody asks them those types of questions. I worked in a previous position, and our payroll manager had uh, ran an entire consulting business on the side and took half days every Friday so that she could go and work with clients in her side business and no one batted an eye. But here I get a little podcast and y'all want to ask me what I'm doing and, you know, discourage me from posting in certain places because you don't want it to reflect bad on the company. And we got to talk about potential conflict of interest and all of these kinds of things. And you ain't said nothing to her. And I know you ain't said nothing to her because I'm the one that does conflict of interest <laughs> documents because I'm in HR. Right. So it's like, what it, exactly is it that you're concerned about? And it's ultimately fear of the conversations that we're having, that here you are out here pushing for things right. and, and a way of, of being that we know doesn't exist here. And so at some point, that dissonance is going to cause a problem for us. Right. And now what do I do? And that's all that that boils down to. And that's not my problem. That's y'all's problem. That's y'all's problem to solve. And I think it's wild because it's like, 
the very reason that you're frustrated or that you're uncomfortable with the platform is the very reason that you need to have the conversations internally to fix the problem you don't have. Right. 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 And I would much rather that you buck up and have the conversation with me as uncomfortable as it might be, because then at least I can continue to hold like a a base level of respect for you, but (laughs) that you just kind of tippy toe (laughs) around it as though, you know, and, and say, well, you know, uh," you know, and all the hemming and hawing instead of just being like, yo, you out here talking about this stuff. And it's really uncomfortable for me. I would, that's a conversation I can have, but I can't have the, well, do you think that you could just refrain from posting it on LinkedIn? I'm not refraining a doggone thing and see that. And that's nothing. I see that's where I get get triggered because it's like, okay, first of all, y'all are already harming me at this job. Mm-hmm. So like, let's have that conversation right now. Okay. You're already harming me here. And now you want to police what I do outside of this job on platforms that you do not own. Okay. So no, I'm not going to refrain from doing anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to post what I want. I'm going to say what I'd like. And you know what? If we need to have a discussion about separation, let's write that check and I'll leave. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not, I like, guess like, this is done. Like, and that's, these are discussions I've been having. <laughs> not with my employer <laughs> but i have had with other people about just like the concept of being scared right like it's I'm, that like that yeah. that part that stuff is done right it's 2020 black blood has to be worth something okay mm-hmm. like the black blood that's been spilled in the streets from black trans women getting murdered for no doggone reason by the state and by operatives of the state and by folks that look like us and folks that don't look like us uh black blood has to be worth something the black men are getting murdered by the state mm-hmm authorized by the state and also accomplices of the state and yet you know what and the black blood still pumping in my body got to be worth something so no i'm going to say what i want i'm not being disrespectful i'm not being Mm -hmm. violent i'm speaking truth Mm -hmm. to power which you find violent because you're used to being the person who's inflicting violence mm -hmm. and so now when so now when someone calls your violence into account and your twisted mind you think that's violence but it's not you've been Mm -hmm. violent right and so like i think for me, like I'm really passionate about like any work that really comes down to like dismantling systems and structures that are white supremacists in their structure and um, and origin. Right. I think, you know, you and I just were on this panel. And I think for me, like what frustrated me in the moment was even even now, you know, HR professionals um, in this HR space and they're trying to get into diversity and inclusion or whatever is like we're, we're still talking about race and racism in these abstract terms almost like you walk right. through the Louvre right and you're looking at some like postmodernist sculpture and like, yeah both and of you're you... trying to define what postmodernist means <laughs> yes. you're rubbing your chin and you're going I wonder what the artist meant by this I wonder what the artist meant by that but instead of looking at a postmodernist sculpture you're looking at a black dead body and you're over here talking about so what is white fragility? No, that's not actually the discussion we need to be having right now, right? Like, that's not actually mm-hmm. the conversation. The conversation right now is, why is it that we've been so conditioned to be unmoved by black trauma? Why is it that we don't look at mm-hmm. black people and see them as human beings? And I think, like, that same mm-hmm. mindset, then you say, okay, and where and how do we still maintain this attitude in the workplace? And what do we need right. to do from a policy and procedure and process perspective? To make sure that we are not carrying over those same systems of oppression and harm out there in this space. Like that's Correct. that's where I really want us to go. And like anytime I get invited to some spot 
some platform and we don't talk about that like you heard me on that that one but anytime i'm in a space and we don't do that i'm gonna call that out because that's the conversation i believe we need to have yeah absolutely absolutely and i think we have to get because we're still having these these very surface level conversations that are all about tolerance and assimilating and um you know defining things and instead as you said we need we need to actually be moving to the point where we acknowledge in full awareness the harm that we have done and commit fully to finding ways to stop harming black harming them psychologically harming them financially we need to start finding ways to stop causing that harm you know and so for me like i really want to give you more space because i know and i you know i know we've been talking for a minute but i want to give you more space one more time to talk about hroi and then again like as you talk about that like what are some practical ways you think hr can reaffirm and reduce harm of black and brown people in this space and like where do you think hr stands today in that that work yeah today we overall are nowhere in that work because the vast majority of human resources professionals simply are not equipped to have that conversation there are so many were so many who after the incident with the murder of George Floyd, I don't even want to call it an incident because it's, it's a murder, of George Floyd occurred, went on this whole all lives matter, we respect everybody statements, these very vanilla, very bland statements, instead of coming out very firmly in the camp of this is completely unacceptable this is completely against what we stand for as an organization we know that our black employees are hurting we know that black people are dying and we are going to do whatever we can as an organization to support the eradication of supremacy because we believe black lives matter it was just unbelievable how much argument there was and how much disagreement there was among human resources professionals as to whether or not this is even a space that we need to be getting ourselves into. And so in that regard, I continue to say we're nowhere. So what we have to do to get started, and and let me back up and say, I don't want to vilify HR. I love my profession. The challenge with human resources that I see is that many organizations do not put people in charge of human resources who are classically trained in human resources. You would not put some finance who had never, you know, created a a profit and loss sheet or had any type of education surrounding how accounting is supposed to happen. You would rarely put someone in charge of sales who did not have experience in sales or operate. But for whatever reason, we continue to think that it's okay to take the office manager. And I would argue 
that in this time, human resources and, and how you structure your people operations is just far too important to leave to just any old body. And so we've got to be honest about, about that because when you have people in the profession who don't have the background and dare I say classical training and then don't force them to, to get caught up on that, then you're automatically going to have problems with those individuals being ready and prepared to handle these sorts of incidents and move the organization forward. And you're going to have problems because they don't know what to do when someone comes to them and says that they've been microaggressed. They don't know what to do when someone comes to them and says that they've been harassed or accuses the organization of discriminating against them or says that they found out that they make, you know, 20 percent less than their white male counterpart and they want an explanation as to why. When you have not been trained and you don't have traditional human resources education, you don't know what to do. So the, you know, neighbor who you hired to be your office manager, who's now your manager of HR, is not equipped to handle those sorts of issues. And that's going to get your organization into a ton of trouble legally and culturally that you just don't want. So that's where, for me, it really starts, is we have to be honest about, you know, the ways in which people come to HR, the value that we place on that function within the organization. Um, I think organizations, here's where like capitalism and supremacy intersect. Like, you know, they're evil spawn twins anyway. And human resources as a function, when you look back on on the history of of the, the profession and how it has evolved, it has evolved out of the need for administration surrounding people that came out of the labor movements. So organizations were already mistreating people, making them work in unsafe conditions, not paying them a minimum wage, not paying them, you know, overtime, letting children, you know, work in in factories and things like that. And the labor movement changed those things. And that's really where you saw human resources get its start. So we became part of corporate structure out of a need that was anti-capitalist. So didn't nobody want HR to begin with. And then we stick women in charge of it. And ain't nobody trying to listen to no woman either. So you're going to take women and put them in charge of the thing that the organization inherently doesn't want to do because of the way the capitalist structures work and then wonder why it's not working. And then you enter, you know, people of color and, and, and other marginalized identities. Those tend to be the people who are in charge of HR and ain't nobody trying to listen to them. When capitalism says we don't want to do that anyway. Right. So it, it was all really I don't want to say doomed to fail, but but definitely doomed to struggle from its inception. But now we've reached a point as we look towards the future of work and what I think will be our next revolution from a labor perspective where, where people are demanding 
equity where people are demanding more flexibility and more support for their whole humanity. I think that's the the place that we're going to see work go in the future because people just are not with the shit anymore of working like a Hebrew slave making bricks out of straw and mud for pennies and two weeks off. Right. So <laughs> as we start to see that be the direction. Now you have to have somebody at the helm of your organization who can understand how to balance capitalism with humanity, which are two couldn't be more two contrary. They're just just so diametrically opposed. Right. And I think, and, and I think like, there's like this push where like Sherman's like the police, right? Oh yeah. Right. Like Sherman's Sherman's and I won't say that it's always been this way, it, but Sherman at a national level right now is so off course from where it was going and where it should be from yeah. a people perspective. There is nothing about that organization in this time that shows that it's prepared to lead in this time. It's so, it's, and it's a shame. Yeah. It's just a it's a shame that here it is, you know, led by a black man and so completely without a moral compass, without diversity, equity or inclusion. And by the way, within its own ranks is in complete disarray. And that shows in in terms of of what it is that they're putting out there. You have a CEO who is serving on three committees of this racist administration right now, sitting on USA Today weekly, answering questions about how to create equitable workplaces and how to address immigration issues. Are you kidding me? Never mind the fact that here we are in the middle of a pandemic and they are mandating their employees to go into their office. It's wild because, so I recall when Sherm, because it was kind of messy, right? When like HRCI and Sherm split. Bro, yeah, when they broke up. When they broke was, up, mm-hmm. right? And so that's when I remember, I was like, oh, snap, Sherm, okay. Because I already had my PHR, I automatically got that Sherm certification. Like, all I had to do was take like that 15 minute. Yeah, you had to do that webinar. I did whatever the same that, thing. Whatever that thing was, right? And so I remember the time, I was like, oh, wow, look, this is like a legitimate, like, you know, stand up. Look at, look, look at this. This is great. And it just, but to your point, like over the past four or five years, I've just noticed like this pivot and, and also in the rhetoric, but also in the emails that I used to get, because again, mm-hmm. I was a part of Sherm. And so even the emails I would get just like, there's more and more like pushing for policies and, and legislation yeah. that were not, that were not advantageous to employees across the board, but certainly uh, not supportive of black and brown employees at work. And so I was just like, what, mm-hmm. is, what is this? And then on top of that, yeah, like, you know, you look at their latest little bit of um, DEI stuff. And like, so to be clear, like, I got an email because I just, you know, just like a lot of stuff you can subscribe, like you forget that you're on those little subscription lists, right? Mm-hmm. So I got the email talking about, you know, what would you like to see that Sean would do from a, when it comes to diversity and inclusion? And I just emailed the person. I found them on LinkedIn. I was like, hey, I got an automated email. And, um, you know, this is what I think you need to do. You need to work with Living Corporate. We create this type of content. This is what you need to work on. And, you know, of course, I didn't get a response. And then a couple of days later, they dropped the whole, you know, write something on your arm and take a picture, whatever that nonsense was. And so I, yeah, this is this is not this is not bag on Sherm time, even though I think um, Sherm, Sherm is the police. So like and I don't 
I do not mess with police and I do not mess with police organizations. But I do think that like if we don't have a radical like reimagining of what HR is going to be, essentially like we're going to continue this path forward. Now, we'll see what happens. Maybe that'll shift and change. Um, but like irrespective of that, it's it's just sad and it's frustrating because there's so many black and brown folks who just myself included who just have yet to really see HR act in a way or mobilize organizational justice. Typically they told the company line and really reinforce the harm that is enacted by uh, the senior, most people in charge because the senior, most people in charge run the business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now look, mm-hmm. we've been talking for like an hour and so then we're going to get up out of here. Y'all, this has been Zach. We live in corporate. Like, you know what we do, right? Okay. Every single week until next time you've been listening to Zach and you've been listening to Sarah Morgan, CEO, executive leader coach you know all around dope individual peace and we're back look i'm really really excited and i'm thankful for all the growth we've been able to achieve this year right we got westwood one we launched a new podcast we launched some web shows we've done a lot (laughs) we've done a lot got some sponsorships like we're actually we're cooking y'all like we're actually growing and that's because of y'all You know, selfishly, I have to admit, as challenging and exhausting as 2020 has been for me personally, Living Corporate has seen some incredible growth. And that isn't possible without you. So I want to thank you. Now, if you're listening to this and this is your first time listening or this let's let's just say it's like your 20th time listening and you haven't given us five stars on that Apple podcast, I need you to stop what you're doing. Pull over to the side of the road. You know what I'm saying? Keep your mask on. But just go on the little Apple app. And just, you know what I'm saying? Give us five stars. Don't give us four. Don't be a hater. Give us five stars. Share it with a friend or two. And you know what I'm saying? Then get back to your day. All right? All right. We'll be back soon. Catch y'all later. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.